grab you a glass of water, please. Thank you. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this new series, uh, Ruined to Renovation. This is the sur- third sermon, the sur- third sermon uh, in this series. And uh, in, in the past two, two sermons, we've laid claim to the fact that every person, thank you, um, every person on the earth is being spiritually formed always, right? That we're always being spiritually formed. And some of us think about that. Some don't, right? Um, people like Moses and Solomon and Socrates and Spinoza and Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and Oprah and Tim Keller and all the other pastors and priests and shamans and gurus and all these people think about this, right? Environmentalists and feminists and hardline Republicans and hardline Democrats all think about this fact. White supremacists. And Black Lives Matter adherents think about this, right? Everyone's trying to change the other or defeat them, right? And they may not use that terminology that we use here in church of being spiritually foreign, but it is in essence to that, that to which they drive, right? Everybody's doing it. They all know, even if we don't think about it, they all know that how you think reveals who you are and therefore that drives what you do, how you interact with people. Remember last week we used Proverbs 4.23, be careful how you think, right? Your life is shaped by your thoughts. And then in other translations, it's kind of strange because it changes the language. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. So thinking or thought and heart are interchangeable in this sentence and this statement. So we know that from modern neuroscience, it's, the heart's not here. The heart is actually here. It's in our brain, right? It's the seat of our emotions. It's the seat of our logic at the same time. And the only argument between all of these prattling folk and these armchair philosophers out there in the world is what in our spirit needs changing and how that change is wrought within us, right? That's the only argument. Spiritual formation happens. It happens all the time in all of us. And, and for us as believers, as Christians who have proclaimed Christ in life, God calls us to be participatory with him in our spiritual formation or in our character development. Actively participating, right? So in this series, if there is a signature passage, it might be John 7, 37 through 38, or signature verses. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And we started with this verse and, and some others on the first sermon, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That is the call, in a sense, to rise up above all other humanistic philosophies that are recycled throughout history and literally, instead, to take on the very heart of God. And remember, we said last week that Christians are the salt of the earth. That's what we are called. That given that we are the bearer of the thoughts of God. And, and to be the bearer of the thoughts of God is to be the bearer of the heart of God. That's not an arrogant statement. It is a fact. That if we believe this Bible thing to be true, this Jesus thing to be true, then we believe that God has revealed His heart to us in the Scriptures and we bear that to the world. 
At one point, all of us didn't have it. And we were given it. You know, Jesus came and He lived among us for a time. He taught. He performed acts of power. He healed. He challenged. He led. He went to the cross. And He conquered the grave. He overcame sin and death in this world. And after His resurrection, right, and just before His ascension, He gathered all of His little disciples, His little band of disciples, not a whole lot of people, by, by the way, He gathered them together and he commanded them to do what? To go to all nations and do as he had been doing. Right? And that moment in Christian tradition is called the Great Commission. Co-mission. Something we do together. It is is a purpose. It is a greater purpose. It It is a command. His last command is our first concern. It's the first thing that we think about. It's the thing that we're all supposed to be about doing. Right? And he said, then Je- it says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth uh, has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, because he has all authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. By the way, I feel like this sermon is a little bit of a stream of consciousness, but I think it's brilliant. So just ride the wave for a while. But if we want to know God's objective for the earth, for the world, right? For all of mankind, it is right here. It is in these verses. It is to bring every ethnic group, every people group, every culturally, linguistically distinct people group in the world underneath or under His directive goodness and power, under His reign, His kingdom reign. And He's using us, the church, the the body of Christ, the people of God, He's using us in that process until as the prophet uh, Isaiah says, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the prophet Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And notice that word knowledge. In other words, that the world will be filled with the thoughts of God, which we know is the heart of God. That's the objective. It's why Christianity is one of the few missionary religions. Not every religion out there is a missionary religion. I think for Hinduism, you have to be born. You can't become a Hindu. Did you know that? I'm pretty sure I'm correct on that. I haven't, that was an like off-the-cuff statement, so I'll have to do some my research. But I'm pretty sure that's true. You have to be born into that caste system. But it's why Christianity is one of the, the, the few missionary religions. And it's why we call ourselves evangelical. And I mean that in the best sense of the term. Right? Like if, if the word right now makes you, if the word evangelical makes you itchy right now, remember what I mean by that word is dissimilar from what is the popular marred image of it today. Timothy Keller just wrote an article recently that I read which said uh, that when he began his church in New York City, and I, th- I think it was in the 1970s, that the word evangelical at that time meant that he wasn't an angry fundamentalist, but now it means the exact opposite, that he is an angry fundamentalist, right? 
One recent article said evangelicalism, so it seems to many, wants political power. Think of the moral majority in the 90s and all that kind of stuff. Wants political power, and even now, uh, political power at all costs, and is using the language of morality and family values as a facade. When we don't re- re- uh, reflect the holiness and the purity of the Lord in what we choose, how we choose to live, but we want to tell everybody else what to do, that's a true statement, right? And neither of those things is what I mean when I say evangelical, right? I just want you to know that. The Great Commission is evangelical in nature. And it has been the, the catchword Evangelical has been the catchword marking all strong revival and enlivened movements of the Spirit of God in the church throughout history. It's the word that we use when the church is actually doing what the church is supposed to be doing, right? Movements that are marked by a strong commitment and a submission to the Word of God and taking seriously this last command as the first concern, right? It simply means that we are devoted to the Scriptures of God, the the Word of God as revealed to us, that we're devoted to following Jesus, to being led by His Spirit, to loving others into relationship with Him, and and to caring for those in need, right? Great Commission Christians committed to seeing all ethnicities, all people groups out there know and worship Jesus and grow in holistic goodness and health in all ways. And make no mistake, Jesus set in motion a perpetual evangelistic revolution enacted through his followers, which includes you and me, A revolution which will continue until God's reign is full on earth. That is the end goal. So missions or evangelism is not the end goal. Worship is. Worship is. But that's the means that we get there. Right? A revolution changing the hearts of people, like Shelley just talked about, the hearts of people one by one as his living water wells up within each of us and overflows out to others around us, out to our community, those people that we're going to watch that movie with in Ardmore. And those people over in Lebanon and Syria that we just started partnering with. Spiritual formation and discipleship overflow into evangelism and the world is changed by Jesus through the ministry of his body on this earth, that is the church, through our ministry to others. And it happens, by the way, in no other way. No other way, right? Not, it's not implemented programmatically. It's not institutional. It's not by force. It's by one-on-one intimate interaction with other people, talking and sharing and, and letting Christ in you overflow to others through word and deed, through the sharing of the gospel and loving people physically, caring for them. Our future hope is the culmination of God's reign on earth where evil is defeated, which we all want, and humankind is, is fully and joyously conformed to the peace 
and the justice of God's heart. That is the goal, right? A result, by the way, of changed hearts, not proceeding from better social institutions or laws imposed on people from the outside. It isn't about communal or social or governmental or institutional power over people. But rather, it begins with God's power within us. The bearers of the thoughts of God, the salt of the earth, the bearer of the heart of God. And that overflowing to other people. One of the best bumper stickers out there says something to the effect of, be the change that you want to see in the world. Right? I like that bumper. Most bumper stickers are trash. Don't even bother sticking them on your car. But that's a pretty good one, right? Although as Christians, we might interpret that differently than another person might, right? For somebody else, it might mean to pick up, you know, the flag of some new popular issue, waving it loudly in the world and at times with anger or unforgiveness towards the opposing side of your issue. Or it may mean to treat somebody better until they treat you badly. And by doing so, they give you free reason to withhold further care and service and love, and you can freely hate them. But for us, to be the change means to be Jesus. That's simply what it means. Changed from within, our own evil nature and our own selfish desires excised from us, from from our being as we begin to walk in holiness and purity and the love of God. Our character reflecting Jesus in loving sacrifice, teaching and, and leading people to the truth. And we believe there is a truth. See, we can't be the problem if Jesus has made us the solution. Or we shouldn't be the problem if Jesus has made us the solution. Maybe I should say it that way. The gospel, the kingdom of God, changes hearts, which is to change thoughts, which is to change beliefs, which is to change values, which is to change behavior and even what we produce our artifacts what are artifacts your house is an artifact your car is an artifact my chicken's coop is is an artifact you know uh you know whatever it is buildings and architecture and this church and and even government systems and laws and all those things are artifacts the things that we make right but all of that comes out of who we are And the gospel is quietly, quietly, lovingly overtaking the world from the inside out, not the outside in. Not the outside in. A difference, by the way, which sets Christianity apart from all other religions in the world. They all seek to change you from the outside in, which is an impossibility, by the way. The Christian aims for the center bullseye of this model which is the person. And they refuse to dance around the outer circles of artifact and behavior. A change of character, right? A change of of inner person resulting from ongoing relationship with Jesus in the context of the body of Christ. And this relationship with Jesus, when engaged, 
changes feelings and ideas and how we react to others and how we react to situations and it affects tendencies and habits and all our social interactions and relations in the world. A revolution of character changing the world through us as we are being changed into the likeness of Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. Orderly, healthy social arrangements, laws, structures, institutions, they might be helpful in in this journey, right, in the world, but they aren't the end goal. They aren't the end goal. And they certainly aren't necessary for this heart change, and they definitely are not the means of this change in humanity either. They are not. A Christian can be a Christian in the worst of situations, in utter, utter chaos and war, and in plenty and, you know, abundance. And we're called to be that. The end goal is Jesus. And the, the end goal is his reign in the hearts of us and the hearts of others. That's the end goal. The fundamental means to true heart change is his transformational power in the hearts of anybody. And that's it. Jesus is truly the only hope for this world. Only hope for this world. And I proclaim that loudly and boldly and I will die on that hill right there. It's a fundamental mistake for us to place even lofty principles of justice above Jesus, making it our pet cause in life and hating the other side. It is... It is a mistake for us to boil religion down to simplistic morality instead of personal relationship with Christ reflected in holiness and purity. Behavior, just focusing on behavior. It is a mistake for us to hold fast to tradition for tradition's sake when tradition was intended only to drive us to Jesus in the first place. See, forms change. They drain of power and they need to be changed to communicate again in the future. We shouldn't hold too strongly to them. In 10 years, 6-8 will look different in our forms, or it should, because we want to continually adjust to communicate to our community. But, here's the problem. We often tend to focus on the outward things, don't we? It's easier, it seems easier at least. It's a lot less frightening to do so. The outward things to us are more easily controlled. The outward things are are, are more easily controlled and they keep our focus, our eyes focused or or our eyes diverted, uh, better said, from the hard work of true heart change. Since true heart change forces us to face our most tormenting demons. And that's scary. But if we are brave and we trust Jesus, He will vanquish those things within us. He will change them. He will overcome them. See, we often make the mistakes as Christians uh, to focus on these outward things. For instance, I just read an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about this new spiritual group in the Catholic Church called the the, the neo-catechumenal way, right? What, 
I would have called it something different. That's a little difficult, difficult to remember. But it's a group that is born out of this like passionate interaction with Jesus in community. And it's trying to bring the Catholic Church back to the basics of study and of evangelism. So they actually go out in their communities and knock on doors and tell them about the gospel. Ooh, when's the last time I did that? Right? Now, I'm a, I'm a protestant right, at, at my heart. I don't mean to offend anybody if you have a Catholic background or if you are Catholic. I don't mean to offend you. But as a Protestant, I don't see eye to eye with the Catholic, my, the Catholic Church, you know, in all points. I, I don't have a problem with my Catholic brothers and sisters, and I consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. That, I'm not trying to be critical of the Catholic Church. But, but I would say that to get back to scriptural study and evangelism, that's one place that I can agree with them on, Right? But Catholic parishioners get upset because it's different. It doesn't uh, follow their comforting traditional path, right? When a priest invites this way, this neo-catechumenal way into their church to revitalize things, people sometimes leave the church given it challenges their system, their forms. But they never ask themselves, maybe this is something that God is trying to address in their hearts. See, we tend to guard our structures and, and involve ourselves too much in this heated exchange of polit- politics and institutional matters instead of Jesus in the hearts of people and the great commission to which he has called us all to. Remember, when hearts change, people change from belief to value to behaviors to even our artifacts, what we produce. Focusing on the artifact, laws and governments and you know, all the different things, and, or, or focusing on behavior doesn't change hearts. But hearts do change behavior and artifacts. Laws and rules only have the power to restrain behavior. They hold no power at all whatsoever to change hearts. If you want to kill racism in this country, give people Jesus. Because if you just change laws, they're just going to be quietly racist. They will. It is sinful nature. It is wrong. A law might restrain it somewhat, but it'll come out eventually. They had no no power to change hearts. Changed hearts in Christ naturally, naturally produce institutions which uphold justice and mercy in their day-to-day operations. Naturally. That's how it should work. It could be, it could be that we don't want to do the long, hard work of seeing Jesus answer this in us and in others. We don't want the Great Commission. We don't have long-suffering hearts in ministry and attitudes in these matters. We just don't think in long terms of this, this stuff. It seems inefficient to us in a fast-food society to do it the way that Jesus has called us to do it. We don't like the idea that some folks will never accept Jesus and never change no matter how well we represent Him to them. As if it were all up to us, which it isn't. We are only called to be the faithful expression of Christ to all the peoples on the earth until He returns. That's our job. And sometimes, we're simply derailed 
in our own noble pursuit of Christ, too easily by spiritual warfare in our own personal lives. We don't always want to practice what he preached, emulating how he lived, and to what he called us to to do in the Great Commission, since it is long and uncomfortable and intimate. We can't control it. We think demonstrations and law change out there will change the world quicker, but it can't. It can't. It never will. Coercion doesn't change hearts. Laws, punitive measures, change bars, or shaming doesn't change hearts. Jesus does. At the core. And it's, and it's solid change. When we put people into prisons for misdemeanor criminality, do they come out reformed Changed people? No, they come out professional criminals. We know this. It's a big debate in that whole world. They don't come out loving, kind, productive citizens. And there's a debate, and I think it's a good debate, on how we do punishment in this country. But when Jesus changes a heart, the deadness in us is buried. It is killed. It is killed. And something is brought to life in us, and the old is gone and the new has come, right? But Christians are getting caught in the thicket of issues, the thicket of issues, the behavioral and the artifact circles out there. That's where we're getting caught. The problem with us is spiritual entropy, right? Like we said, the heart is deceitful above all else. We heard that from, I think it was Jeremiah last week. Left to our own earthly wisdom, what we tend to do is to be taken away in the current of uh, uh, the, the common current of humanistic thought life, especially when it is festooned in religious garb. Right? We allow life to just happen to us. We don't think about our spiritual formation. We're unintentional in our pursuit of Jesus, and we know what happens in a vacuum. Something fills it. Right? Suddenly we're not praying. We say we do, but we don't really. Suddenly we're not reading and meditating on Scripture. We're not getting the thoughts of God into us. We're not communing with the Holy Spirit and with each other at the level that we need to. And the world's wisdom begins to seep back into the cracks and crevices of the church. It becomes a business. It becomes a social club. By the way, don't ever come to me and say, well, the church is a business. I hate that. It is not a business. We are not in the business to make money. Businesses are in the business of making money. And when the church becomes a business, it becomes damaging. It's not a social club. It becomes a social club or it becomes an angry social justice mob that just hates everybody else that doesn't agree with its issues. Purpose shifts from the glorification of Christ in the world to just getting our agenda across or guarding our assets. And that's a shame. When spiritual entropy takes over the church, bad things happen. And we've all seen it. We see it in history. We, we tend to focus on the externals instead of Jesus. Think of the Crusades. Think of hidden sexual misconduct and cover-ups in the church. Think of angry, hurtful leadership that you probably all experienced. 
Or churches which simply abandon scriptural authority and they loosely wear religious garb, but they adopt current pop, pop culture views on damaging issues. It has nothing to do with the heart of God for humanity. See, you can dress up a pig, you can put a ring in its snout, but it's still a pig. Right? We don't hear of churches who practice healthy lives with Jesus. We don't hear about them. They don't make the news. They fly under the radar, serving one another and serving their neighbors well, loving the brokenhearted, loving the poor, sharing Jesus in word and deed, walking in purity and holiness. Everybody is welcome, doing it all without, without calling attention to themselves. They're not sensational. But bad news travels fast. Good news doesn't. In business, if you have a disgruntled customer, they'll, uh, they'll tell a hundred or a thousand people, a, a satisfied customer might tell one to ten. It's a shame, but that's true. See, but the church is, and I believe this with full heart, is the salt of the earth. It is the salt of the world. It is. Even with all its faults throughout history. Most of the good in the world is a result of the church. Trace back origins of any good communal institution, be it the YMCA or hospitals or works among the poor, and almost always, if, almost always, if not always, they have Christian origin. Because we're the people that actually really care. Don't believe the hype. I was in the work of the tsunami in 2004-2005. It was the Christians who answered the call to recover people and rebuild their lives and all that stuff during that time. I was there. I was on the ground. I saw the organizations and I talked to the people that showed up. It It was the Christians, not the Muslims, not the Hindus, not the Buddhists, and not the millennial atheists who do like service out in the community so much. It was the Christians. It was the Christians. They were amazing. See, and I'm not being critical of millennials. You know, I span that gap, I think. But atheist millennial volunteerism will wane. And I think it already has started to wane. You know, they're marked by this, like, they want to serve in their community. But I think that will wane if it hadn't already started. And I think it already has. People will eventually give up on their volunteerism because they'll realize it doesn't really change people. It doesn't really change anything, actually. And there's no greater thing in that work for them that gives an ultimate purpose to the work. They're missing the the essential ingredient. They won't be able to conjure the self-sacrificial long-term spirit necessary to do good work to others or for others who don't really care that you're doing good work for them. Who don't say thank you. They have no God who hung on a tree as a model for them saying, forgive them, they don't don't know what they're doing. They don't have that model. We do. Suffice it to say, from the truly renovated heart in Christ, living water will well up in us, it will overflow from within us, and the whole earth will be full of His glory, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the same thing as Matthew 28, the Great Commission. But that happens in the atmosphere of Christian intentionality being spiritually formed in Christ under the lead of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, choosing to walk it out with Jesus. 
The living water of Christ can't flow through pipes corrupted at all. It can't. Pipes of corrupted souls. If your public water pipes got clogged at your house with muck, the flow's cut off, right? You can't get your water in your house. The pipe still remains. The connection's there, but the pipe needs cleaning out. By God's grace, you are connected to Him. That is grace. That's His doing. That's His act in your life. Your salvation is totally by God's doing. Something He won't sever. He won't give up on that relationship. He won't take it away from you. But we participate in the relationship with Him as we're being transformed into His likeness. In Christian theological terms, that is being sanctified. We're being changed into the likeness of Christ. And you need to know those terms. Remember, the gospel isn't against effort. It's just against earning. We can't earn our salvation. It's impossibility. But we're called to work it out hand in hand with Him. When we give up on the effort of growing in Christ, spiritual entropy sets in. It does. It just naturally does. The vacuum is filled with other things. If you remember, months back, we talked about the dung gate in our uh, Nehemiah series, the the wall that surrounded Jerusalem and the different gates. And one of them was the dung gate. And that that is the gate in the city walls of Jerusalem where they expelled the garbage, aptly named the dung gate, right? And there was also the water gate, if you remember that, not at all tied to Nixon, not these Nixons, but Nixon the president. But there was also the water gate where people who gathered at the water gate to hear the word of God read over them. And it's an image of the living water of God's word constantly flowing into people, the the people of Jerusalem expelling the bad and replacing it with good, replacing it with the thoughts of God, right? Utilizing the means of spiritual formation in our lives is to allow God to clean out the pipes, Clean pipes flowing with living water of Jesus naturally create and sustain healthy systems. They don't put up with the flow of unrighteousness and injustice. They can't. It's not in them. It's simply not their modus operandi, right? But they also don't sit around wringing their hands, you know, like when the world acts the way it does as if everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. They have hope for the future. They know God will overcome all this garbage. They know it. Healthy people naturally create healthy systems. People bearing the thoughts or the heart of God act like God. They love their neighbors as themselves no matter who they are. I, had a, I have a friend who's a politician in the area and I just read his post this morning on Facebook. This is outside of the sermon, sorry. And he said that he was at a meeting last night and he came away feeling like, oh my gosh, my neighbors are so racist, like so hurtful. And they were arguing against the Indian students from India uh, in, in their community saying that they were bringing down the, the level in their schools. And they were like couching it in these very like whatever terms. And he was saying, I never, I never thought that I would sit through a meeting like this. It was amazing he goes, these people have no love in their hearts, no care. 
And he, and he quoted Matthew 25, 40, which says, the, for the, what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. It's true. It's true. I was glad to read that. I was glad that he said something. T.S. Eliot described the current human endeavor as that of finding a system of order so perfect that we won't have to be good. That we won't even have to do it. That the outward system will control it. Well, that's the unicorn. It doesn't exist. A futile system, you know, thought, a futile endeavor or, or, or pursuit in light of the deceitful heart and the sinful nature of humankind. It is a futile pursuit. It doesn't exist. It won't exist. You cannot legislate racism. You cannot legislate poverty out of the system. It is going to happen because people are sinful people. I'm not blaming any. Like, don't, don't misunderstand me. If you have any problem with what I'm saying, come and talk to me. We need to talk this out. But in contrast to T.S. Eliot, Jesus says systems become good when people within them are good. Systems don't make us good. But good people make good systems. It's all about the character of those that are involved. It's all about whether or not we reflect Jesus, the heart of God. Jesus didn't set us on a course to create governments or revamp social constructs or, or make and guard humanistic government laws and all that kind of stuff. Vote how you want. I'm not telling you how to vote. That's not the issue. He sets us on the course of making disciples. I'm a pastor. That's what I'm calling you to. Make disciples. The great commission, right? The question is, what does that entail and how is it done? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He doesn't leave. He walks it out with us. Always remembering we are to emulate Christ in all ways. Firstly, we recognize the authority of Christ and what He does with it. Right? All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. All authority, right? Does he establish a worldly kingdom and plop himself on a throne and incarcerate or kill all those who would oppose him? No, he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't use force. He doesn't use coercion. He doesn't use the sword. He doesn't use a gun. He doesn't use anything like that. He teaches his followers, followers, as a matter of fact, not to do that and not to be power mongers. Not to seek power over people. In Matthew 20, you'll remember the story of the two sons of Zebedee and their mother comes along and asks Jesus if her sons might sit in the seats of power on his right and left in his kingdom. And the other disciples are incensed by this request. And Jesus says to them all, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, the rulers of all the people out there, right, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Sacrificial nature. 
right? Jesus in his power and authority in gathering, uh, you know, in, in all of that power and authority gathers all this little band of followers together and he says to them, go tell people about me. Go make followers among all the people groups of this earth. Tell them what? The good news. And it is good news. And he makes followers of people through self-sacrificial Christ-like love. So he doesn't use all of his power and authority as others would use it. He does the thing which seems to take the most time and the most effort. And it's not expedient, but it is solid and it is long-lasting. It is seed-like. Plants seeds in hearts and it flowers and grows and it pushes out all the garbage. It's not impersonal. It's not institutional. It's not even sensational. Rather, it is very personal. It is very mundane. It is done in the context of everyday life, of going about our tasks with others. It's done at work. It's done in family relationships. It's done with your neighbors. What's more personal than addressing someone's soul or their character or their eternal security in this world. There is nothing more personal than that. You don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion, but we're called to talk about one of those things. So we're to share Jesus with people in the context of doing life with them from a place of knowing Jesus intimately ourselves. I can't give you what I don't have, right? I can't give you what I don't have. If I don't really believe and own and live that Jesus is the thing that brings peace in this world and kills racism and overcomes poverty and heals people and gives us freedom and gives us eternal security, if I don't believe and own all that myself, I can't give it to you. You've got to struggle with Jesus yourself first, right? Living examples of the gospel, sharing its message, to baptize people when they decide to follow, to continually teach them through the, the, the thoughts and the heart of God as provided in the Scriptures under the lead of His Holy Spirit. That's what we're to do. To do this in a healthy atmosphere as outlined in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. You want to do this. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over people or those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, being examples to people. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's your future hope. We need training. We're too busy to stop and feed ourselves spiritually. We make decisions that keep us from this. We don't spend enough time at the feet of Jesus, right? We need to be about hitting the bullseye and not dancing around the edges. So, do you know what the gospel says? Do you know how to share the gospel? If you need to get back to the basics, there's a great book. I forgot to bring a copy, but it's called The Walk by Stephen Smallman. I have a bunch of copies, and I'll hand it to you for free if you want. Um, But it is a a great book to just get that person that is either walking with Christ and kind of like 
not thought about this for a while, get you back to the basics, or it's, it's a good book for a new believer or a person that's just exploring Jesus to understand what this gospel is all about. Take it and read it. Do some reading. Do some, put some effort in. Put some time in on your relationship with Jesus. Write out your testimony, right? Write out your testimony as a practice using Scripture in your testimony to explain what Christ has done in your life as a pre- preparation for you to share with somebody else. Talk about what, what, what you were like, what you're, what, what you're like when Jesus met you, and what you're like now, how life has changed as a result of knowing him. Memorize key verses from the Roman road. If, you, if you've been around the church, you know that, that whole thing. Or just memorize key verses that help you to, to share who Jesus is with others or, or remind you what you be, need to be living and doing, right? Things that will help you in your walk or your witness with others. And above all, pray for a heart to be a great commission Christian and to have the opportunity to share with others. Engage. Because we are great commission Christians here at 6-8, right? Living water wells up within each of us and it overflows to others around us. Spiritual formation and discipleship are to overflow into evangelism and the world is changed by Jesus through the ministry of his body on earth, the church, 6-8, right? My dad bought me a, a bracelet that I have on this morning I, it, for Christmas and I've been wearing it every day since and I made you some. And I want to pass them out. Now, the ones in this little thing are a little longer, so guys with large muscles like myself, you probably want to take one of these. I'm just kidding. And these are a little shorter. And you can also, like, take links off or add links. I have extra ones up here if you want. But I want to pass these around, and I want each of you to take one and put this around your wrist. And it's called a Fisher of Men bracelet. How you doing, TJ? <laughs> um, it's called a Fishers of Men bracelet. The, these are like little swivel things for, for fishing line, like what you would put on the end of your fishing line to and get out there and get a fish, right? It's not the hook. I don't want to hurt you. But, um, but it's just something to remind you of what we're supposed to be about, to remind you that you're a great commission Christian. Now, if you don't want to wear a bracelet, that's fine. Hang it on your rearview mirror. Or hang it someplace that's just going to remind you to do this. But let's be Jesus to people. Let's take the time to engage in our own spiritual formation and let's out of that overflow to others. And I want you to take a look at this video that uh, a couple shared. At, uh, Julie showed, sent this to me. They, there was a couple. I couldn't get to see the talk this week. I um, was a little busy, but I, they were talking about discipleship and all this kind of stuff, and then they shared this video. So I wanted to share this video with you at the end of today. 